Hi there, it's great to be with you. Uh, we're in a little series on the Psalms at the moment. And if you have a Bible, could you turn to Psalm 91? Psalm 91. This is a beautiful and very loved Psalm. We've been focusing a bit in this series on some of the great, some of the Psalms that we all love if we know the Bible well, some of the classics, if you like. And Psalm 91 is a precious Psalm. And probably some of us have been finding that in the last few weeks, as lockdown's been going on, we've been clinging to it more than we normally do. We may have been praying it more than we normally do because it's a very reassuring, encouraging, strengthening kind of psalm. But it also raises a very challenging question for us in the midst of the context we're in at the moment. It, it, ra- it makes promises to us that when you hear them, you might think, hang on a second, how does that fit with the experience of pretty much the whole world at the moment. What do we make of what God seems to be promising alongside what seems to be happening? What's the connection here? How do I work that one through? And actually, you might be very new to Christianity. You might be joining us as a visitor for the very first time. You might be very familiar with Christianity, but it'll probably raise the question for you either way um, because of some of the apparent guarantees that seem to be written into this psalm. And it's worth us processing those and thinking about how best to handle them and how to understand them in light of what's going on in the world at the moment. But more than raising that difficult question, the psalm ultimately provides us with a deeply encouraging, strengthening, comforting answer, which is that God is our rest. God is our rest. And so we're going to read Psalm 91 together. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You won't fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it won't come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the Most High your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you won't strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I'll protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is the word of God. Psalm 91 is one of the most reassuring, fortifying chapters in the whole Bible. It's full of rich promises that go down deep into the goodness of God. But a lot of people struggle to receive them because of a misunderstanding of this psalm, which I think it's important to address up front. That's not normally what we would do. We'd normally say, this is what the Bible means, rather than this is not what the passage means. 
But in the case of this psalm, it's probably occurred to you already as you're reading it with us, it goes something like this. You read the psalm and it sounds like, if you're not careful, a series of categorical guarantees that if you worship God and trust him to deliver you, you will never come to any physical harm whatsoever. Right? And you can see how that misunderstanding would come in because in places that's what it sounds like the psalm's saying. It sounds like, to use the language of today, an immunity passport. It sounds like something that if you, you have it and you hold it up and you say, that, look, I've got Psalm 91. I am never going to get hit by a virus. I'm never going to get hit by an arrow. I'm never going to get hit by death. I'm never going to suffer physically in any way. I'm going to live my entire life free from suffering, pain, and even death because I trust in God. And a lot of people have historically read it pretty much like that. If And I think it's a a misunderstanding. I actually think it's quite a dangerous one in the days we're in, but it's one that you can totally understand how people get there because there are a number of statements in the psalm that sound like they're leaning that way. Sounds like faithful believers won't be killed in battle, even if 10,000 people around them are. The one who trusts in God, not going to be struck down. It sounds like lovers of God will never be hit by a deadly pestilence or what we would call a virus. Sounds like trusting God automatically ensures that you will be immune to physical harm. And in its extreme form, of course, in some churches and groups of churches around the world, that means that you can, and in fact should, handle poisonous snakes in the course of a meeting. Because you're not gonna, you're just gonna demonstrate that God's gonna heal you of being bitten by them. Or you could jump off a building and not get hurt. Or like one pastor I know told me once, said, I think you can decide the timing of your own death. I said, you can just choose when you're gonna give up your life. And I thought, wow, I'm I'm not sure that's what Psalm 91 is saying at all, but you can see how some people get there. And interestingly, some of those, a group of people who agree with that interpretation are actually from a completely different perspective. Some people who are very skeptical of biblical authority, some people who say, I don't believe the Bible at all, would also take that kind of view. And they would simply say, well, the psalmist does mean all of those things and he's wrong. The psalmist is saying that if you trust in God, it's an immunity passport, but he's wrong about that and the rest of the Bible's wrong too. And then, of course, there's the awful flip side of that view, which is that disciples of Jesus read the Bible and this psalm that way and then they get sick or something bad happens to somebody who also trusts in Jesus and they conclude, oh, If people who trust in God and are loved by God never experience harm, and I've experienced harm, then maybe I don't trust God. Maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe he's not my fortress. And as a result, it can be the beginning of an unraveling of their confidence in the God whom this psalm is intended to show is a fortress for us. So we have to be careful with that reading, and I understand it. In fact, I have... I think in many ways, it's, a lot of it is actually right. A lot of what it's saying is good, but it goes too far. And in saying those things, it can end up being very self-defeating in the reassurance or not that it gives to Christian believers who read it. So let me give you four reasons why I don't think this psalm is an immunity passport, right? If I can use that language for all who trust in God. I don't think that's what it is. And the first reason is that that is not what the Psalms teach about harm and suffering, as we've already seen in this series to some degree, because we've looked at a number of lament Psalms or sad Psalms in which harm does strike the people of God. But even if you don't want to back off and look at the whole of the Psalter together, all 150 
You just want to look at this one and the previous two or three, you'll find, well, in the previous Psalm to this one, Psalm 90, Moses says that our lives last no more than 70 or 80 years and are full of trouble and sorrow. Psalm 90 verse 10. Right? That's the previous Psalm to the one we're reading. The Psalm before that, Psalm 89, Ethan cries out, remember how fleeting is my life for what futility you have created all humanity. Who can live and not see death? Who can escape the power of the grave? Right? So Psalm 89 and Psalm 90 sound like they're saying something different from the immunity passport view of Psalm 91. The one before that, Psalm 88, is the darkest psalm in the entire Psalter. Heman is overwhelmed with trouble and his eyes are dim with grief. And he finishes the psalm saying, darkness is my closest friend. It's the bleakest darkest, most sorrowful chapter, arguably, in the entire of Scripture. And even in Psalm 91 itself, even in this very buoyant, confident psalm, the writer is still praising God for being with him in trouble. Psalm 91, verse 15. So even if all we had was this psalm, we'd say, well, there's still trouble of some sort, so what's that? And if you look at the previous two or three, you'd be very hard-pressed to conclude that the Psalter, the psalm, the book of Psalms together, doesn't present us with the reality of harm and suffering over and over and over again. So it doesn't look from the book of Psalms as a whole that we are intended to conclude that trust in God is an immunity passport. That's the first reason I think that. The second reason is that it's also not what Jesus taught about harm and suffering. If you read, read through the Gospels, you read through any one Gospel, uh, take the Gospel of Luke, or actually all of them together, you will find on numerous occasions that Jesus warns his disciples that not only would their faith not stop them from facing suffering and harm, it's actually going to make it more likely. Right? You read through the Gospels and you'll find Jesus apparently sometimes over and over again saying, guys, if you follow me, you're not going to get protected from harm and suffering in and of itself. I'm going to deliver you from all kinds of things, but you're not going to stop suffering ever as a result of following me. And in fact, some of you are going to find much more intensive sufferings and persecutions because you follow me. And Jesus himself, of course, is the ultimate example of that because he is the only person who fully, in the language of Psalm 91, trusted in the Lord to deliver him and made the Lord God his rest and his refuge. Jesus is the only person who's done that perfectly in all of history. And of course, he suffered more pain and physical degradation than any of us can even imagine. That's the second reason. I, think, I don't think it's what the Psalms say about harm. I don't think it's what Jesus taught or did about harm. And thirdly, I don't think it's what the rest of Scripture teaches about harm and suffering either. Righteous people who trust God as their refuge in the Bible do face trouble. They do suffer harm. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Job, David, Jeremiah, Daniel, almost all the major characters you can think of in Scripture face trouble and even and harm and oppression and difficulty. And actually, even in the most triumphant statement of Christian safety and security in all of Scripture, Paul at the end of Romans 8, we're more than conquerors, he says. But even in that text, Paul is mentioning threats on his own life or in the lives of believers of trouble, hardship, nakedness, danger, sword, and being slaughtered like sheep. So even if you go to your very, very secure, high view of the safety of the Christian texts, like Psalm 91, Romans 8, or many others, you will find those kinds of threats and challenges running right the way through them. 
So that's the third reason that I don't think Psalm 91 is an immunity passport for all who trust in God. And the fourth reason is quite simply stated, but I think it's got some punch to it as well. There is one person in scripture who does think Psalm 91 should be read that way. And that person is Satan. Right? Look at Matthew chapter 4 and verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he'll command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. That's just how Satan reads the psalm. What does Jesus say? Verse 7. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The psalmist is not promising us immunity from physical harm. Satan would like you to believe he was. He wanted Jesus to believe that he was, but that's not what he's promising. He's actually promising something far, far better than that. Or if you like, he's actually promising seven things that are far, far better than that, if you'll indulge me. But seven promises that are weaved through this psalm to say, this is not a guarantee of immunity from any physical harm. This is actually something better and richer that you can bank on forever and that's going to keep you secure even when physical harm comes. Here are some of those things. He's, gonna, he's promising us rest. Verse 1, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Rest in Scripture is what comes when the work has been done. And if you take shelter in the Most High, in His finished work for you, then you get to rest on the basis of what has been done. But the what has been done hasn't been done by you. It's been done by Him on the cross. You may have heard this before, but I just find it so powerful. The last words of the Buddha before he died were... depending on how you translate it, but roughly work hard and strive for your own salvation. The last words of Jesus before he died were, it is finished. You see, Jesus came to give you rest. He came to bring release from the work and the work not that you have done, but the work that he has done on your behalf guarantees that if you dwell in the shelter of the Most High, you will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. So the psalmist is guaranteeing you rest. Second, he's guaranteeing you refuge. Verse 2, I'll say of the Lord, he's my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And in times of trouble, like the one we're in now, there are places of refuge that are no longer available to you or to me. It's going to sound ridiculous, but one of my places of refuge is Starbucks, right? When I go to Starbucks, I can just feel like I'm escaping from the pressures sometimes of work, sometimes of home, sometimes of responsibility, I can go there, I can get my coffee, I can sit down with a Bible or a book and I can find myself feeding and delighting myself in God in a place of refuge that is a place of safety, like a haven. That means I feel like the rest of the world can't get me. But when those refuges collapse, and it won't be Starbucks for many of you, it'll be something totally different, but whatever that place might be for you or whatever those people are, many of whom you can't see right now, you find that those refuges have collapsed in this instant. But when they collapse, when they give way, our refuge in God remains. And that's the promise of this psalm. You'll find times of trouble where your normal places of refuge aren't there. You can't get them. They've gone. But even in those moments, you can find yourself making the Lord your refuge. And I found, of course, that I don't need Starbucks to encounter joy in God through the word of God. I can find that no matter where I am because he is my refuge and not a coffee shop. And he's your refuge too. The third thing the psalmist is guaranteeing us is fearlessness. 
verses 5 and 6. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys. When you make the Most High your dwelling place, you don't have any need to fear. The very worst thing that can happen to you is death, and Jesus has conquered that already. And this is a somewhat separate subject from what you might call anxiety, I suppose, like some of the concerns of this life, and that's another subject for another day. But you see that the fear that governs us existentially, the fear of death, the fear that we are at risk of being enslaved to, Jesus has defeated it. And I heard a story just a few weeks back, and some of us did, um, about a, an older gentleman who'd, who'd been told by his children, we really think you should stay inside and social distance, make sure you stick to the guidelines. And he said, well, what have I got to worry about? I'm already saved. I know if I die, I'm going to heaven. And at which point the kids are going, no, 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 hang on, we still think you should stay inside because we don't want you to go just yet. But actually, is there not something resolutely biblical about that hope, even if we might not think that's the best way of applying it? That actually there is this undeniable confidence The sunny certainty in the goodness and love of God, that means that Christians simply do not need to fear, even if we think their fearlessness might well lead them to make different and wiser choices. The fourth thing the psalmist is giving us is protection, verses 11 and 14. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I'll protect him, for he acknowledges my name. We've already seen. That's not a guarantee that you're not going to suffer, but it is a promise of divine protection and angelic guardianship that should bolster our confidence and fuel our prayers. And I'm praying that language a lot. I quite often pray. My wife and I pray for people. Lord, would you station your angels around that hospital bed, around that home to protect them from harm? This is a promise that should bolster our confidence to pray prayers like that. The next thing the psalmist is guaranteeing us is victory. Verse 13, you'll tread on the lion and the cobra, you'll trample the great lion and the serpent. And we'll come back to that in a moment. The sixth one, he's guaranteeing us answered prayer. Verse 15, he will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. When you call on God, he will answer. He will hear. He always does. And that is better than a passport of immunity. That is a promise of intimacy of God hearing everything you ask. Most of you know me well enough to know that I'm just a big fan of the Heidelberg Catechism and a nearly 500-year-old question and answer document on the Christian life. The very last question in the Heidelberg Catechism is talking through the Lord's Prayer and the very last question finishes with this. It says, what does the little word Amen at the end of the Lord's Prayer, what does the little word Amen express? And the answer is, the word Amen means... This will truly and surely be. It is even more certain that God hears my prayer than that I truly desire what I'm praying for. And that carries the spirit of this psalm. I know when I pray to God that he's going to hear me. In fact, I'm more confident of that than I am of the fact that I want it in the first place. And seventhly, the psalmist is guaranteeing us salvation. With long life, I'll satisfy him and show him my salvation. And this promise, in many ways, was too great even for the psalmist to understand. Long life is wonderful, but it still ends in death. 
And what in Christ God was going to do was even better than what the psalmist said. The psalmist thought, I'm going to live a really long life. But in Christ, God showed us, no, it's even better than that. I am going to give you eternal life. I'm going to give you everlasting salvation that not even the grave can take away from you. There's a lot of promises there. Seven huge arcs of biblical promise. Rest, refuge, fearlessness, protection, victory, answered prayer, and salvation. Like a giant multicolored rainbow of seven arcs that you can stick in your window and say, I trust the Lord. And the one that encouraged me the most as I was preparing was the one that we skipped just now. The promise of victory. Verse 13, you will tread on the lion and the cobra, and you will trample the great lion and the serpent. You know, there's two animals in scripture that are primarily used to picture the devil, a serpent and a roaring lion. And here the psalmist promises that you are going to trample them into the dust. Because Jesus refused to bow down to the devil, even when challenged with this very psalm, the lion of Judah has mauled the lion of hell. Because Jesus did not yield in the garden to the temptation of the serpent, the son of Adam has trampled the serpent and the God of peace will soon trample Satan under your feet as well. Do you see, it is the victory of Christ that guarantees the victory of the believer and it's right here in this psalm. So people who think that this psalm is an immunity passport are not exaggerating the promise, they're actually lowballing it. They're actually focusing on protection from physical harm, which might be very nice, but ultimately does not guarantee us what this psalmist is saying, which is that the victory of Jesus does more than make you a conqueror in this life. It makes you a more than conqueror forever. This is how the Apostle Paul talked about it in the passage that comes in the New Testament that's really the most like Psalm 91, I think, that you can find. What can you possibly say in response to all that I've been teaching you? If God is on your side, who can possibly stand against you? The God who didn't even spare his own son, but gave him up. How on earth is he not, along with the son, going to give you everything else? You weigh the weight of Jesus and the weight of everything else in the world. Jesus is greater. And if God is going to give you Jesus, he'll give you everything else as well. Who on earth is going to stand up and bring a charge against people whom God has already declared are righteous? God said you're righteous. Who's going to come up and say, oh, actually, I saw them doing this or I saw them doing that. Doesn't matter. God is the one who justifies. Christ Jesus is the one who died and more than that was raised and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And if that's true, what on earth does it matter if anybody comes along with any kind of suffering or hardship or persecution or danger or nakedness or sword? None of those things are going to count against you if Jesus is counted on your side. You could range the whole of creation against me and it wouldn't matter because I stand under the blood of Jesus. And because I do, even though every day I might be handed over like a sheep to the slaughter, I'm certain that nothing, it doesn't matter what you throw at me, life, death, angels, past, present, future, none of it is going to separate me from the love of God in Jesus our Lord. This psalm is better than an immunity passport. This psalm is a guarantee of the everlasting love of God from which you cannot be separated to the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the certainty that comes from being in Christ. We thank you that for all the extravagant promises of this psalm, in some ways the promises that are ours in Christ are yet greater and we pray that in the midst of all of the understandable questions and challenges and sometimes physical harm and threat that comes to us in this life, 
that and particularly in this season that you would preserve us you would carry us through we would see these promises come to pass in our lives and you would sustain us by your right hand that we would make the most high our rest and we would dwell in the shadow of the almighty and we pray this in Jesus name amen Okay, so we're not actually going to head back into a, t into a worship song today as we so often do. We're actually going to respond in a different way and that is just to spend a bit more time in prayer. And I thought it'd be great to pray for one category of people that Andrew actually just mentioned briefly uh, at the beginning of his preach. And it's for those who have got sick, perhaps even quite seriously, who've uh, lived under a weight of guilt that their faith wasn't enough. Perhaps thinking, if only I had enough faith. I would be heal, healed. And that's that's kind of a type of a way of thinking, a type of theology that can let us down when we need it the most. Uh, hopefully today's message has reassured you that ongoing sickness and suffering is not a measure of God's love for you. And it's not necessarily a measure of where your own faith in it is in that. So often God uses these things to develop us, to test and train us, to force us to rely on him. That was the case with the Apostle Paul who saw amazing miracles miracles but himself had a thorn in the flesh and it was the case with Timothy who had an upset stomach and had frequent illnesses. So if this resonates with you perhaps you'd just like to join me in prayer for a moment. So let's pray now. Dear Heavenly Father we put our hope in you. We put our faith in you and we rest in you, in your presence now, Lord God. We know that you can heal. We know that every sickness will be removed from our bodies in your eternal plan. We do pray for healing, knowing the power of the Holy Spirit. But we don't demand it, Lord God. We wholeheartedly choose to trust you now, even when it doesn't make sense to us. You know, when our own understanding fails, we will still choose to lean on you instead. When we don't experience healing, in the moment that we feel we need it the most, we trust, Lord God, that you have a greater plan. We do, we do pray for your power. We pray for it to be at work in us, to see us through each day. We know that we are saved by grace, totally and completely. We stand before you with the righteousness of Jesus. And we do pray that you would heal us from guilt, perhaps, and strengthen us from the enemy who will come and tell us that our faith wasn't enough. Our faith is in you, Lord God. We thank you that you are an ever-present help in times of trouble, Lord God. We thank you for Jesus and the glorious life that he has set before us, and it's one that stretches into eternity. We do pray for strength for each day, Lord God. Thank you. Amen. Okay, great. Okay, so if you actually want to continue in prayer... Um, our Connect team are running a prayer room on Zoom and which should actually be online right now. So a link is in the description of the YouTube video and you can just click that link and you can join in on the prayer time on Zoom. So that is open now. You can go to that now. And uh, for everyone else, it was really great to see you online this morning. Remember, if you're new, if it's one of your first times here, there are those ways to connect with us on the website, to contact us, uh, to request prayer, or for anything really. So do make use of that, and we'll see you next week.
The Christian faith is not just a nice idea or a good set of morals to live by. It cannot be disproved or proved by science. It cannot be undone by all the big questions we struggle with or all the values of a 21st century post-truth culture. At the very heart of the Christian faith is a message known as the Gospel, a term which literally means good news. The claims of this news, if true, will rework the entire way we see the universe and our place in it. The whole of Christianity hinges on this one single event, the death of a man on a Friday and his resurrection back to life on a Sunday. If it could be disproved, the whole Christian faith would fall apart. The man in question is of course Jesus, and he claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be the one through which the whole universe was created, and he claimed to be able to forgive all our sin and offer peace with God. These are bold claims, but if God exists, nothing is impossible. This good news message was spoken by Jesus himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This message is one that claims to be the difference between life and death on an eternal scale. It claims that all of humanity have fallen short, that we are lost and in fact spiritually dead. The only way to go from death to life is through Jesus, a free gift for everyone who chooses to believe. But let's back up for a moment, there are so many questions. One of the most significant is this, are we really in this dark place of death? And why can only Jesus save us? Join us online at kings.church forward slash good news to explore these big questions and the evidence for the Christian faith.